Good afternoon and welcome to Bob Quest, the Wednesday edition. I am Jeff Smelser in Exton, Pennsylvania. Chase Byers is with us from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Good afternoon, Chase. Good afternoon, Jeff. And Joe works from Elmira, New York. Good afternoon, Joe. Uh, hello, gentlemen. How are you all today? Last week we start. Oh, I'm fine. Sorry, I'm fine. <laughs> Last week we started a study of the book of Revelation, not really intending to start a study of the book of Revelation. Uh, we were just going to do an introduction, look at the first three chapters, which we did. Uh, but then we had some uh, feedback, some interest in maybe going on. At least one viewer thought we were going to actually start a study, and he was writing saying he was excited to to watch the ongoing pro program. So we decided we're going to continue in the book of Revelation. We'll take a crack at chapters four and five today. Maybe get a bit further. We'll see how it goes. Um, does that sound like a plan, guys? Sounds good. All right. Um, let, I tell you what let's do. Uh, for anybody who may be listening to this webcast and hasn't heard the previous one, let's just do like a, a one and a half minute review of the first two chapters. Either of you want to take a crack at that? John is in uh, the, on the island of Patmos um, because of the word of God. He's suffering. He is writing seven letters to seven different churches who are also suffering, um, some of them more than others. The reason some of them perhaps aren't suffering as much is because some of them are uh, compromising the, the truth. Okay. And these seven churches are real places. They're real people that the angels are, are coming to bring this message to. And so uh, we ought not to think about this in terms of things that are going to happen way, way, way down the road in the future that isn't really relevant to these seven locations. But at least as, these, uh, as the Lord is talking about these people and these churches, these are real things, real applications to these churches, just like the other epistles that we would read in the New Testament. Okay. And, and so I would, uh, the one thing I would add is one of the things he says to each of the Lord says to each of those seven churches is he speaks to him that overcomes. Mm -hmm. So there's a description of their current difficulties and, uh, and then a promise to him that overcomes, which leads to the question, well, what is it that God's going to do about these difficulties? What is it that God is going to do about those who are persecuting us? And so if we go back to Revelation chapter one, and if we write, uh, if we read in verse 19, where Jesus says to John, write, therefore, the things which thou sawest, the things which are, and the things which shall come to pass hereafter. I think it's, it's fair to look at chapters two and three, and the messages to the seven churches as kind of a description of the way things are, the sufferings that they're enduring, the tribulation that they're enduring, even here near the end of the first century. And then the things that are going to come hereafter, what God's going to do about it, we, we see perhaps beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, where it says, After these things I saw, and behold, a door opened in heaven, and the first voice that I heard, a voice is of a trumpet speaking with me, one saying, Come up hither, or come up here, and I will show you the things which must come to pass hereafter. And so what we're going to see in chapters 4 and 5, we're going to see a picture of God on his throne, and then there is this, this scroll, and it's all sealed up, and there's no one who is worthy to open it. And then the Lamb, who's going to represent Jesus, comes, and he is worthy to open it. And um, so he begins to remove the seals that would keep this thing closed. And as he does so, we see what I believe is a picture of the judgments God is going to bring upon those who are 
persecuting his people. Joe, did you just give me a sign? Um, I, I don't have that capability. I don't believe that men have that any longer. Um, uh, but yes, I was trying to encourage you to take off the screen share. Um, yes. <laughs> I saw a piece, just a little small inset where you were on my screen and I couldn't see what it said, but I saw a paper holding up there. I thought, yeah. he's trying to tell me something, which reminds me of Revelation 1.1. 1, 1. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, let's, let's go on to chapter four. So um, yeah. if, if I could if I could show uh, for just a second what I think is just a beautiful segue uh, for, you know, we have these seven letters and there's sort of a roller coaster, some churches doing really well, some not. And we kind of close that off with this lukewarm church in Laodicea, chapter 3, 14 through 22. And, you know, they're just a mess. They think they're great, but they're they're woefully without the Lord. And uh, but he offers them this beautiful promise, if they would change in verse 21, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And it's just really neat then when we turn to chapters four and five, that promise that he's offering that you can sit on the thrones with me and my father. Now let's look at those thrones with me and my father in chapters four and five. Yeah. All right. Good. Uh, so that takes us right into chapter four. And so let's see God on his throne. Why don't we read chapter four? Um, and let's just read straight through verses one through seven. And then we'll come back and get these things. Oh, yeah, go ahead. After these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately, I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he was, who was sitting was like a jasper stone, and sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones, upon, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of burning, a fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And behold, and before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, and full of eyes around and within, and day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And, and when the living creature, oh, sorry. Yeah, let's stop there. That sounds good. Sounds good. Um, the thing that uh, I think that I, I like to do is connect this with Ezekiel 1, because what we see yes. here is a picture of God enthroned above the cherubim. Um, it's very reminiscent of Ezekiel 1. The idea of God enthroned above the cherubim, we actually see that in the tabernacle. Um, in the second room of the tabernacle, in the Ark of the Covenant, with its lid, with the hammered work cherubim, and God enthroned above that. But here... In Revelation 4 and Ezekiel chapter 1, 
you see the glory of the Lord, which is a phrase we see in Ezekiel, being described as God enthroned above this crystal platform yeah. that is above these cherubim, these four cherubim, and each one has four faces, and you have the lion, the uh, the eagle, the the bull, and the and the man's face, and and I'm I'm going to throw this on screen here real quickly here. This is a drawing that when I was teaching a, a group of women years ago, one of them uh, kind of put together here, trying to represent what you see here. So what's what's this round thing over here? Is that the wheel within a wheel? Yeah. So so that's not mentioned in Revelation, but it's mentioned in Ezekiel. But then you see these four beings here, each with the four faces and the wings, and mm -hmm. you don't really see the crystal. Yeah, Chase. And, and that illustration does a good job because the kind of point of the four faces facing all directions is they can see in every direction. And the, the wheel yeah. within the wheel, it's able to move in any direction without losing focus. And so yeah. it's everything is completely seen is the idea. Uh, just uh, it's kind of yeah it's it's a mobile chariot of god enthroned above in his mobile chariot or above his mobile chariot and being able to see everything and be everywhere instantly and that's the way it's depicted i'll show you my attempt to to represent what i saw uh, put a picture of was, joe up there no let's see my my artwork was not nearly so good but <laughs> but i did get the, the kind of the crystal thing here all right well let enough of that Let's, uh, let's now talk about uh, some of the particulars. And um, so just uh, what, what elements here in Revelation 4, and maybe let's do this real quickly. What elements in Revelation 4 do you also see in Ezekiel 1? Let's just go through and spot them real quickly. Uh, well, so certainly a throne in, in Revelation 4, uh, 2, uh, there was a throne set in heaven. Yeah. And if we go back to Ezekiel, we don't, in Ezekiel, the description starts from the bottom up and it goes from the four living beings up to the crystal above them and on, on up to the throne and, and the thrones in chapter one and verse 26. Am I wrong that Ezekiel also says, and I was in the spirit? Um, or am I casting my revelation knowledge onto Ezekiel? I don't remember him saying that, but if he does... Then he said it, and I don't remember it. Maybe he says it in chapter eight. Maybe it is. I apologize. All right. Um, real quickly, some of the other uh, parallels here. I'm going to just not in any particular order, but if we look at verse six in Revelation four, before the throne, as it were, a sea of glass like unto crystal. And if we go back to Ezekiel chapter one, now over the heads of the living beings, there was something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystal extended over their heads um then you see the all the eyes um in verse six and of course in ezekiel chapter one there's eyes on the wheels and later on in ezekiel we find there's eyes on the backs of the wings and all of that kind of thing um the creatures themselves in revelation 4 7 creature like a lion calf uh had the face of a uh, uh, the first creature was like a lion and the second creature like a calf and the third like the face of a man and the fourth like a flying eagle. Those are the four faces of one of the cherubim. And so also in Ezekiel 1, you see the same thing. Uh, you see the wings. It's interesting in Ezekiel, they each have four wings. In Revelation, they each have six wings. Uh, but again, this is not meant to say this is literally how 
God looks sitting on his throne. These are descriptions that are intended to conjure up, or maybe I shouldn't say conjure up. These are descriptions that are intended to bring to mind ideas, concepts, impressions. Um, and so you can see some variation in some of the details from time to time. Anything else anybody wants to note there? I think you, you have other similarities, at least in uh, Ezekiel 1. Um, you have this sense of uh, his appearance being the color of amber and the, the rainbow around in verse right. 26 and 28. Mm -hmm. uh, you have that same description, that very similar description in uh, Revelation 4, 3. Right, exactly. Good. Uh -huh. Can I can I just jump in and ask too? I mean, so guys, what is the purpose of Revelation? I have a way I'll describe it, but how would you all describe it? I, well, I, I should go last because I'll probably say something stupid. But I think the purpose of book Revelation is, is multi, multifold. I think, first of all, it is intended to assure those people in Revelation chapters two and three in those seven churches, God is in control and he's going to give you the victory. Yes. And so just taking that definition right there, and I, I agree with you, there's, it's multifaceted, but that, that's exactly what I would also say is the, the whole point of Revelation. Look, it's really you. interesting. I got it right. <laughs> But it's really interesting to me that God starts by encouraging these brethren by talking about his glory, by talking about his all-encompassing vision, and that through suffering, God sees everything, and God is all glorified through everything. And I think that's a really good place to start, and I think that will bring us a certain amount of comfort if we will submit to that idea. Sure. So I think we see that in other areas of Scripture as well, that, that that's kind of where you have to start. Um, in the midst of suffering is recognizing how glorious and great our God is. And, and so I think it's no um, coincidence that he starts here with this. I think it's a helpful point. Now, I don't want to take us away from Ezekiel if you have more to say there, Jeff, but because uh, I do think that that's where a lot of this imagery has been drawn from here. But it's helpful to note that it's very similar also to Isaiah chapter 6. Yes. I mean, um, it comes verse eight. And so what we're seeing is sort of this pattern of, of God's presence during tumultuous times. You know, in, in Isaiah 6, 1, it's the year that King Uzziah died. And so, you know, what's going to happen? The king has died. But what Isaiah sees is the king, the Lord, sitting on his throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Um, uh, you know, you, you have this uh, imagery here of God in the temple and filling it up with his, again, with his glory. And you have these creatures that are shouting out, holy, holy, holy. That'll come up again later on in the book of Revelation uh, in, this, in this chapter here, Revelation 4. Uh, so it's kind of neat to see this as a pattern uh, from the Old Testament that John is now seeing here. Exactly. And even when, when we read this description in Ezekiel chapter 1, which is so similar to what we see in um, Revelation 4, uh, at the end of Ezekiel 1, it says, um, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And, and I want to sit on that phrase, the glory of the Lord. But first, I want to just notice it says the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So this is not meant to say this is exactly what God in heaven looks like but it's a representation, a likeness. But you mentioned God in his temple or God in his tabernacle when they built the tabernacle back in Exodus, the 40th chapter. 
And of course, in that second room, as we mentioned, you had the Ark of the Covenant and the, the lid with the cherubim and God enthroned above them. And it says um, that in verse 34, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So this is indeed uh, an idea, an image that's, that's rooted very much in the Old Testament, really from the beginning of the Old Testament through to the end. All right, uh, now where do we go from there? You connected us to Isaiah and the, the language, holy, holy, holy is the Lord in Revelation 4 verse 8, harks back to what we see in Isaiah, the sixth chapter. Um, I guess let's read verses 9 through 11 of chapter 4. Maybe just one other quick thing here. Um, you know, one of the things that helps me a lot when I'm reading really any literature, but especially the Bible, is to look for repetitive words. Yeah. And wow, in this text, is there any question at all of what we are intended to, you know, what, what's the major thing that we're supposed to see? There's a lot of really interesting and intriguing details, but the word throne is used in twice in verse 2, uh, in verse 3, in verse 4, twice in verse 5, three times in verse 6. Um, you know, it's, and, and it's not the, the structure, it's not the chair that we're uh, being uh, drawn, our, our eyes being drawn to, but it's the one sitting on the throne. And Chase mentioned early on, God's in control. You know, you look Sorry. at these seven churches and you might be thinking, where is God? God's in control. We ought not never to lose sight. Even when things seem to be going bad, mm -hmm. remember this point. God is on his throne. That's right. Good. And we're going to see that again here in verse 10. So let's read verses 9 through 11. I'll read it. When the living creatures shall give glory and honor and thanks to him that sits on the throne, to him that lives forever and ever, the four and twenty elders shall fall down before him that sits on the throne and shall worship him that lives forever and ever, and shall cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive the glory and the honor and the power, for thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they were and were created. So we come to chapter 5, and does somebody want to kind of summarize the first, um, first three, four, five verses of chapter 5? So well, there's someone on the right hand. Sorry, go ahead, Joe. No, no, please go ahead. I was just going to say there's someone on the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Um, and, uh, or so, sorry, looking at that wrong. In the right hand of him who sat on the throne, there's a book written and there's these different seals on it. And there's this angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who's worthy to open the book and break its seals? Which that, that would be such a, a wild Thing to see if you're on John's part but what ends up happening is no one is able to, to break the seals of it and John becomes upset by witnessing this that, that there's no one here that can break the seal so that he can see what's in the book and so that the elders come to him and say stop weeping behold the lion that is from the tribe of Judah the root of David has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals and so there is someone that can open it up uh, but it's, as it's described, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, which, again, brings back so many Old Testament themes and ideas. Talk, let's talk just so people can visually um, imagine this or get a mental picture. Uh, our, my Bible says a book. I think your Bible said a book. 
enclosed with seals. What are we really picturing here? Uh, the New King James says scroll. Yeah. That seems to be the idea here. And so they would take a, yeah, I think most people know what a scroll looks like. And so, but if you can imagine that, um, that edge of, of the scroll, the final wrap, and if it had clay seals, um, you could, I guess today you could think of wax seals, but just uh, seals placed over it to hold it shut so that you can't see what's inside it. You don't know what's in this, written in this thing. And then what we're going to see happening is one by one, these seals are going to be removed. And if you could imagine a series of seals whereby if you remove one seal, you can open it just a little bit and you can see the first bit. And then you remove the next seal and you see the next bit. And what's going to be revealed as we go on into chapter six and seven, as the scrolls are removed, it, they're going to be judgments of the Lord revealed, really what the Lord's going to do about this situation where God's people are being persecuted. Does that sit with what you all understand from the next couple of chapters? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. All right. So then let's get into verse five, because the key here is that no one was able to open this book until who comes and is able to open it. Let's read verses four and let's go verses four through eight. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and to read and uh, to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, so nobody's worthy until we see this lamb. And as soon as you see the word lamb, well, you probably actually, even in verse five, as soon as you see the lion that is the tribe of Judah, if you know your Bible, you automatically think, oh, that's talking about Jesus, uh, the root of David. You say, well, that's talking about Jesus. And if you hadn't thought of it, then when it gets to the part where it describes him as a lamb looking as though it had been slain, well, you, oh, that's Jesus. <laughs> so why is Jesus worthy to open this scroll? Uh. Well, they're going to they're going to sing some of the reasons why he's worthy in the following text. I don't want to get too far ahead. No, of go us. ahead, jump ahead, uh, jump ahead. Well, uh, so maybe just making this connection, uh, the one sitting on the throne is described as worthy in chapter four and verse eleven. He's worthy of receiving glory and honor and power, and he's holding this book. Who's worthy to take the the scroll from the one who is worthy of all praise? Well, it has to be someone. Uh, that is on par with him, if you will. Equally I don't know what the best ways. wording there, um, uh, but it has to be somebody that's worthy to approach the throne. Yeah. So somebody, and, and Pat mentioned, somebody who's sinless yeah. um, uh, and uh, who has done the will of the Father. I'll, I'll add this too. There's an expression in verse 27, Revelation 2, uh, um, I'm sorry, yeah, Revelation 2, 27, he shall rule them with a rod of iron, which comes out of Psalm 2. Uh, and in Psalm 2, 
uh, God says, I have set my anointed, I've installed my anointed, which is the concept of the Messiah, the one God has chosen to be king. And in John chapter 5, in John chapter 5, and let me get there, um, verse 27, it says, he, God, gave him, Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he is a son of man. And I and I've become convinced that what it's saying here, when it says he's a son of man, it is using that phrase with the import one would attach to it from Daniel 7. When a son of man comes before the ancient of days and the kingdom is given to him. And so I, I really take John 5 verse 27 saying he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the one whom the Lord has chosen to give the kingdom to him. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He's the Lord's anointed. And in Psalm 2, that's the one whom the Lord has installed. And that's the one who's going to rule. So, so he comes before the throne. He is worthy to open. And kind of going back to what you said, Joe, it has to be somebody who has the standing with the one sitting on the throne. Well, the one whom the one he who sits on the throne has chosen this one to be his Christ. He has that authority. And maybe just mention this uh, in passing. I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but one of the things that's really helpful in the book of Revelation is to remember these things, because later on, we're going to read about somebody else sitting on the throne, a, uh, you know, an, a, uh, an illegitimate throne. Yep. We're going to read about somebody else being described as sort of like a lamb, but it's a, a faux lamb, a fake lamb. Somebody um, else who looks like he was dead and came back to life. Yeah, exactly. And so the, the imagery here is, you know, it, the, the poetry or the literature is so uh, dramatic and mm -hmm. uh, it's helpful to remember these figures as we go along. But as you pointed out, this is so clearly talking about Jesus um, uh, you know, everything about it, you know, whether we go back to uh, Jacob's uh, prophecies uh, and his blessings in Genesis, um, uh, you know, for the tribe of Judah, or interestingly enough, the root of David, um, uh, you know, we think about the branch of David, that yeah. Jesus came from mm -hmm. David, but David came from Jesus. Yeah. Um, uh, Jesus existed beforehand. And so, uh, you know, just a really powerful uh, imagery, maybe again, drawing back to Isaiah uh, chapter eleven, where you have yeah. the the branch growing out of its roots, but also the in that day there should be a root of Jesse who shall stand. Isaiah eleven ten. So excellent, Joe. I was right. I was going to ask where root of David was used, so that's helpful. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Very good. Okay. So he comes and I um, and we we should make note of this phrase in verse eight, where he takes the book and the four living creatures and the four and 20 elders fell down before the lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And so we have that old Testament concept of the incense that the priest would come in and, and burn in the, in the tabernacle. Um, and that, that represents prayers. And I think one of the things uh, people should be noticing as we go through this, we keep referring to Old Testament passages where we see the imagery that we're seeing here in Revelation or the phrases, holy, 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 whatever we're seeing in Revelation, it's language, it's pictures, it's imagery we've seen before in the Old Testament. So understand that whereas people today want to get out there 
their, uh, I used to say newspaper, I guess today they want to get out their Google news headlines or whatever it is. And they want to try to interpret revelation in light of what they see in the news. We really should be interpreting revelation in light of the way this imagery was used in the old Testament. Yeah. Chase. It is something we might bring up at this point in our study of revelation is the different numbers that are happening in chapter five and are going to happen throughout the rest yeah. of the book. Mm -hmm, Cause good. I think that's something that really throws people off is like, yeah, but like it says there's 24 elders and it says that there were four living creatures in verse six. And it says that uh, this lamb had seven horns and seven eyes. Like what are we really just supposed and to ignore the, seven the numbers? spirits of God? You know, right. there's one Holy Spirit. How do you have seven spirits? Right. And so I think it's important that we take a second to just talk about what the purpose of numbers is and that they're, they're symbolic and not literal in the same way all the other signs that we're seeing are symbolic and not literal. Yeah. Uh, is that fair to say? I think, it very, I think it's an important point. In the book of Revelation, sure, there are some literal numbers, but I think for the most part, I think there were seven churches. He talks about who those seven churches are in chapters two and three. But for the most part, the numbers are often used not as counting numbers, but as numbers communicating an idea. And I always illustrate it this way uh, in the Big Ten, you know, Big Ten football. Uh, we're at the end of basketball season, so we could talk about basketball. How many schools, how many, how many football teams are there in the Big Ten? Is it good ones or, or total? <laughs> well, hey, maybe none then. No, actually. <laughs> um, the, I, the, I've lost count. What is there? Like? Is there 15 or so teams now? No, I don't think it's 15, but I've lost count too. It's, it's more than 10. Right. Uh, but, but they still call it the Big Ten. And, and I really think that's because that's 14. a brand. If you go back to when I was a kid, Big Ten football meant something. Um, and, you know, you're not going to, you don't want to get away from that brand. I always think of Big Ten football, and it's those great big burly boys from the cornfields of Iowa or the cornfields of Wisconsin or the dairy farms or whatever. And they're on the line of scrimmage, and it's three yards in a cloud of dust, Woody Hayes and and um, I can't think of the guy's name, Bo Schimbeckler. You know, that's the brand of the Big Ten. You add some teams, you start calling the Big 12, and you lose the brand. And so in that phrase, Big Ten, 10 is no longer a counting number. It represents an idea. And so also when we see these numbers in the, in the book of Revelation, they're not necessarily numbers we're supposed to count. It's like We're going to get to the 144,000 in a bit, and that's going to represent an idea. Sure. We, and we, so, we probably do this thousands of times a day. Whoa. You know, um, and, and to me, that's a helpful one because is it Psalm 50 and verse 10? I think it is. that says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what about that thousand and first hill? Yeah. Who owns those, you know, those poor cows, you know? Yeah. God, no, God owns all the cattle. Thousand is a term that we use figuratively, you know, and, and we understand that. And so don't be surprised when Bible writers do the same thing that we do in our language. Yeah. So Pat clears it up for us. He says there's 14 Tims in the Big Ten these days. There we go. There we go. <laughs> All right. Okay. Good point, Chase. I appreciate your, your calling our attention to the use of numbers there. All right. So uh, now is come on down and I, I'm going to read starting in verse nine as they sing a new song praising the lamb. 
And I'm just going to read through to the end of the chapter, and then maybe we'll have a minute to kind of introduce as, as the Lamb begins to open the seals. Um, so verse 9, and they sing, and this is chapter 5, verse 9, and they sing a new song saying, Worthy art thou to take the book or the scroll and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain, and it's purchased unto God with thy blood, men of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and made them to be unto our God a kingdom and priests, and they reign upon the earth. Two quick things I want to notice here. First of all, we talked about why the lamb is worthy, and here it specifies because of his being slain and purchasing unto God with his blood of people. And secondly, that these people are a kingdom and priests, and they reign upon the earth. And so we're not talking in the book of Revelation about a prediction that 2,000 years in the future, Jesus will come back and begin to reign with his people. His people reign with him now. They are a kingdom and they are priests. Verse 11, and I saw and heard a voice of many angels round about the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a great voice, Worthy is the Lamb that hath been slain to receive the power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in the heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things that are in them, heard I saying, unto him that sits on the throne and unto the Lamb be the blessing and the honor and the glory and the dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. If you want to go back and note anything in those passages uh, let's do so. And if not, let's go on and kind of get a running start at chapter six. Well, just be impressed with the uh, the passion that is described here. The the I don't know if spontaneity is the right word, but when they see Jesus in his glory and in his worthiness, if uh, if you will, uh, they they cannot help but sing praises. Mm -hmm. And and the chorus just grows, and, and you just you get this image of you know it starts there right at the throne with the four creatures and twenty four elders, and then it gets larger with the with the angels, and then all of creation in in verse thirteen, um, you know it, it gives the image. Uh, was it Philippians two is quoting um, Isaiah forty five twenty three? Every knee will bow, you know, mm -hmm. every tongue shall confess. Mm -hmm. that, I think that's the imagery that you have here is Jesus is so great and he's, he's so worthy. We need to be humbled in his presence. And I, I just, uh, I think we'd be tempted to look at these creatures and be like, oh, wow, those things are amazing. But those are the very things that are bowing down before Jesus. Great. All the more you're, you're supposed to be impressed with the one that they're bowing down to, not impressed with them themselves. Good point. So in chapter six, the lamb begins to open the seals, that scroll that had seven seals. And before we get into each seal, let's just talk about kind of the way this runs in chapter six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and 11, where the seals are opened. And I guess I want to call attention to this. He's going to open the first seal, and you're going to see um, warfare, conquering. And then he's going to open the second seal, and uh, you're going to see um, uh, peace is taken away and, and the, the consequences of war. And then, verse, then he's going to open the third seal, and you're going to see, um, uh, is this where we see famine? And yeah. uh, then the fourth seal, and you're going to see death. 
but I get, and we'll talk more about each of those. But what I notice is when he opens the first seal, there's two verses devoted to it. Two verses when he opens the third seal. Uh, looks like two verses when he opens the 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 third seal. That I may have said third a moment ago. But we get to the sixth seal in verse twelve. And you have six verses devoted to it. So it's kind of like more attention and, and it's devastating sounding. And then there's a pause. There's an interlude before the final seal is opened. And I, I think of those plagues that came upon Egypt and there were nine seals open. And then there was a pause where God gave instructions to his people where, whereby they would be protected from the consequence of that final plague. And, and that's what happens here. There's a pause and God's people are going to be sealed so as to be protected. And then the seventh seal is opened in chapter 8, verse 1. And that is an, there's an elaborate description of what is revealed when the seventh seal is opened. It takes us all the way through the end of chapter 11. So whereas we had two verses devoted to the opening of the first seal and the second seal, we get to the seventh seal and we have four chapters devoted to it. And so I guess what I'm getting at, it seems to me that as the seals are opened, that the, the judgments that are revealed build, uh, kind of like as the plagues were brought upon the Egyptians, they built uh, until you got to the final plague and the death of the firstborn and Pharaoh is broken and he lets the people go. Do you, do you see that same thing here? What, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's well, well documented, uh, well stated, and and I think we we need to see this uh, sort of crescendo. Uh, you know, things are getting more and more serious. That's the word. I, that's the crescendo. Thank you. Yeah. You know my musical background. Um, so. <laughs> yeah. <All> right, let's, <laughs> let's take a look at these seals. Take us through the first couple, somebody. Well, you've got the, the first uh, seal is opened and this horse comes out. It's a white horse. And maybe just mention that all four of the, the first four seals have four horses of different colors. Um, the first one is a white horse and he has a, a crown that's given to him and he's going out conquering. Um, so he's defeating an enemy. Mm -hmm. And then in the second seal, uh, another horse comes out and it's red and uh, what he's doing is taking peace from the earth. So I don't know if you want to think about fire or blood or something like that. Um, uh, people are killing one another. He's a sword is given to him. And so the, the red is a very uh, good image for, for us, I think, in that. Mm -hmm. Okay, go ahead and get two more. And then the third horse uh, comes in verses five and six. And... It seems kind of odd maybe, but he has a, a pair of scales, so he's weighing things. And the reason why he's weighing it is because there's a famine in the land. And so uh, wheat and, and, and barley is going to be scarce. And so the idea of weighing it to, to buy your, uh, your, your grain to, to make flour and so forth, there's going to be scarcity of that. But it's only a partial scarcity because the right. oil and the wine uh, are not going to be harmed those throughout the Old Testament are three, uh, they're, they're commonly used as the staple crops. Right. Um, you know, we might say beans and potatoes or something right. like that, or uh, meat and potatoes or something. Uh, grain, uh, grain, oil, and wine would be common. So partial famine. And then the fourth seal, the fourth horse in verses seven and eight, 
Um, you have this picture of death and Hades sort of limping along, but then he, he adds at the end of that sword, hunger, death, and beast. Uh, and, and death, maybe you think about plagues, perhaps. Uh, so sword, hunger, plagues, and the beast of the earth. Again, common Old Testament language of the way God is going to punish his enemies by one of these four things. Even the very idea of the four horses here, the four colored horses coming, that's the imagery that we see in Zechariah, the first chapter, representing God's patrol going throughout the earth. And I like your point about the, the grain and the oil and the wine staples. And you know, I saw somebody trying to make the point. Um, they thought that that was saying that the food stuff of the rich would not be hurt because they thought of wine and oil as the rich people's food. You're right wine and oil throughout the Old Testament, those are fundamental staples uh, along with the grain. And, and I think you make an important point. This is a partial judgment. This is not the devastating final culminating blow at the end of time. It's not even the final culminating blow here in what the book of Revelation is talking about, which is God's judgment upon those who are persecuting his people at that time. And then here, maybe just a really, at least for me, a really helpful connection to make you mentioned where they're introduced in Zechariah 1. They're also brought up in Zechariah chapter 6. Yep. And it's super helpful because it's Zechariah 6, 1 through 8, which is the same as Revelation 6, 1 through 8. Uh, the four horses are. And uh, so, you know, that's that's a helpful coincidence or whatever, but it but I need all the help I can get in remembering where passages are. <laughs> yeah. um, but one of the things in Zechariah 6, the purpose of those horses, we're, we're given a bit of a, of a greater overview. What they, when those horses go out and do what they're supposed to do, and when they come back, they bring peace to God. Uh, they bring peace to the Lord. Um, uh, in verse 8 of Zechariah 6, um, See those who go toward the north country have given rest to my spirit in the north country. And, and so this is a judgment from God and it's going to bring about peace from God. So God's in turmoil, at, uh, to make the application, I think, in the, in the book of Revelation, God is in turmoil because his people are, are struggling. They're, they're being persecuted. They're being oppressed, those seven churches. And so God is going to send out these horses and uh, in this partial judgment, and that's going to bring peace to God by, by taking care of, by protecting and defending his people. So again, this message might seem scary, these horses going out, but if you're with God and you see these are God's horses, <laughs> that's comforting. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, he's, he's going to take care of you. He's going to protect you. And just back to the idea of kind of it building to, toward a crescendo, you have, you have conquering uh, associated with that as peace is taken away. And, and then there's uh, famine and hardship and then death and now we come to the sixth seal. I mean, the fifth seal. Uh, let's see. We've got just a couple of minutes. Let's see if we can get maybe just the fifth seal, but maybe the fifth and the sixth seal is what we'll try to get through today. Uh, let's talk about the, the, the fifth seal, verse nine. Yeah. When you open the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar, the souls of them that had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a great voice saying, how long, O master, the holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? All right, what do you want? And then there's another verse or so we'll read there, but what do you want to note there? 
They're dying. And so these would be people like Antipas who had been killed. We read about him in chapter two. Good. Uh, yeah, these are souls. They're under the altar. So they've been, they've been slain. They've been sacrificed. And, and what are they longing for? God's righteous judgment. Vindication. Yeah. And so then there was given them to each one in verse 11, a white robe. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little time until their fellow servants also and their brethren who should be killed, even as they were, should have fulfilled their course. So as we, as we go through the book of Revelation, we're still in the midst of this persecution. It's ongoing. And those people who were addressed in the first, uh, in the second and third chapter, uh, they're still experiencing this for a, a 10 days, as he said to the church at Smyrna, for a, a short time, uh, but the victory is going to come. Guys, I think we're going to have to save the sixth seal for next time. Uh, any final thoughts here? Again, just remember that, as Chase mentioned, this is a story, or, or this is a book of, of uh, encouragement and, and victory in Jesus. Um, so while we maybe overcome with some of the imagery, uh, don't lose uh, sight of the, the big picture. Chase, any final word? Nope. Amen. All right. Amen. And uh, thank you for listening. We'll try to remember to pick it up next week with uh, verse 12 and the opening of the sixth seal. Um, may God bless you all.